Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is magic and science. And my guest is Eric Davis. He is author of several books, including Nomad Codes, Adventures in Modern Esoterica, The Visionary State, A Journey Through California's Spiritual Landscape, Led Zeppelin's Led Zeppelin IV, Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, and High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s. Eric is based in Northern California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Eric. It is a pleasure to be with you. Oh, yeah. It's great to be with you, Jeffrey. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, watching grainy videos of you, talking to all the the weird heads back in the day. So it's really a treat to be here. Well, I think we have a lot in common. I know uh, from reading your books that uh, many of the people who have fascinated you the most are people I've interviewed. Interestingly, I just uh, a half hour ago uploaded a, a new interview with Dennis McKenna. I know you've written about Dennis and his his, his brother Terrence. Uh, I am really fascinated by the relationship between esoteric culture and, and scientific culture. And of course, I came of age, I think, as you did in the San Francisco Bay Area, where you had this uh, high-tech culture from Silicon Valley, and at the same time, a growing interest in mysticism. And, and there's no question that there was a lot of uh, intermingling and often even collaboration between those worlds. Absolutely. I mean, I, I did grow up in Southern California and I moved to the Bay in, in 95, but my uh, my family's from here. Part of my father's family is from here. So I spent some time here uh, growing up and I always felt I was very close to the to the source, as it were. Like the, the older I've gotten and I look back at my work and I realize in some ways the whole the topic of the whole thing has been sort of the California conundrum, this strange commingling of consciousness, culture, technology, uh, the rediscovery of ancient ways and Eastern mysticism and Western esotericism and their strange kind of commingling in this place and, and uh, you know, troubling and marvelous. I mean, it's a whole, it's a, it's a fascinating story and, and one that's compelled me for, for a very long time. I think uh, one of the interesting things that you point out in your writing is that this connection between magic and science uh, goes back to the most ancient times. And in fact, I think you could say that uh, the earliest magicians were the scientists of their era, and the earliest scientists were also magicians. Yeah, I mean, these these two uh, categories are very interesting and also deeply, deeply intertwined. Um, my PhD is in religious studies. And, you know, like in with a lot of academics, you know, there are some major ideas that 
people build their entire careers on sort of finessing and critiquing and sort of mapping. And without going into the details, uh, the whole question of how you distinguish magic from science and then also from religion, both magic and religion and science and religion, are just enormously complicated topics because the closer you look at it, the more you realize they're they're kind of dependent on one another, the definitions, and then the definitions change over time. So you have, you know, for example, let's say Kepler's laws. Well, we remember Kepler for his uh, his elliptical orbits, and uh, but for Kepler, like some of the most important stuff that he did was to fit the platonic solids uh, associated with, you know, esoteric and, and neoplatonic thought into one another in such a way that it mapped onto the relationship of the planets and the heavens. Something that now, you know, an astronomer would just not care about at all, except if they were interested in history. But for Kepler, this was more important than the elliptical orbits. So, than the second law. So, what do we do with that? Is that magic? Or is it science? I mean, he was acting like a scientist, kind of, or like a natural philosopher. And those kinds of complexities exist all the way through. But what really interests me now is more in a kind of 20th century mode at a, at a time when, like, we've seemingly clarified these distinctions, you know, that, oh, magic's over there and science is over here and never the twain shall meet, that actually, if you look close, and not even that close sometimes, you can see all sorts of fascinating interminglings of these two modes, uh, sometimes resembling each other, but oftentimes living side by side in individuals, in practices, in cultures. Um, and so things are much uh, not, uh, they're not as uh, uh, clearly defined as they may appear, even in a modern context where we have such a strong idea about what science is and versus the sort of supernatural other stuff. And it's just not true. You know, one of the major stories about the modern world is that one way of defining it is that it is the disenchantment of the world. The idea being that back in the Middle Ages or back in the ancient world, the world itself was enchanted with spirits and, and, and powers and mysteries. And that as science marched along, uh, emerging out of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and then o- over the centuries, it gradually sort of spread throughout reality, disenchanting everything as it goes with its rational, causal, uh, systematic, mathematical explanations until we wind up here in this utterly s- secularized, disenchanted universe. This was, this was a very popular narrative. The problem with it is that it's wrong, <laughs> that there's never been a time where there wasn't enchantment going on, not just in the corners of the margins, you know, uh, small communities or um, strange bohemians or whatever, but even at the, the heart of, of mainstream reality, there is tons of enchantment, and there has been so. And it's even more obvious today when you think that we would all be, you know, rationalist, post-rationalist, secular people, and yet there's more mysticism, more magic, more enchantment, more paranoia, more conspiracy. You know, all of this, the weirdness of our moment really attests to the fact that, in my opinion, there's no way out. 
of the enchanted world. We have to come to terms with it one way or the other. And even if we think that we're apart from it, uh, the world around us, the culture around us, the humans around us, as well as the non-humans, are, uh, are, are trafficking in all sorts of mysteries. Well, it seems when it comes to the word enchantment, uh, or the idea of re-enchanting the world uh, around us. You you have, as you mentioned, the, the paranoid side of it, that there are people who uh, fear that there are powerful elites who are using dark forces and magic somehow to control our minds and force us to, to behave like robots somehow in, in their service. And, and then there's the other vision, which is that this mixture of science and magic is for the liberation of, of people, not the enslavement. And I, I see that there's quite a bit of tension between these two views. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was just reflecting on the fact that my first book, Technosis, which deals with all of these issues, is a quarter century old, which I, I'm, I hate to admit, both for what it says about the age of my body, uh, but also just how long ago it was. And yet it remains in print. It remains a, a sort of, you know, cult classic. People still read it. Young people read it. People who are deep, much deeper in the Internet world than I am, or at least in terms of growing up with it. Uh, the way I didn't, um, you know, are still finding something in it. And I'm, I've, I've wondered that, like it's written at the 1998 during sort of at the peak of the first boom on the internet when people thought, oh, we're really going to change. And Wired Magazine was saying, oh, the, it's abundance forever from here on out. And all of these sort of strange internet cultures were starting to go mainstream. And, I'm like, why, how did it not, how did what I do not become really dated? You know, it's before social media, it's before Facebook, it's before a lot of stuff. And I think it's frankly that I was able to tune into precisely the, the dynamic or the polarity that you were referring to is that every step of the way, technology gives you a positive utopian possibility and a dark manipulative uh, control uh, in the mix. There's always both, both, it's a both and situation. So uh, even as people like in the 90s and people still today to some degree, although in the 90s it was more obvious, there was like, oh, we're building the world soul and as we all get networked together, we'll see that we're all one and we'll have no choice but to overcome our enmity and, and sort of become a global, a planetary civilization, which was a big motif in New Age thinking, the sort of planetary consciousness. Um, and cool, groovy, you know, like, like uh, uh, you know, we're all one, right? But actually being all one, the global village is a paranoid place. That was the thing M Marshall McLuhan talked about in the 60s. He said, yeah, we're moving towards a global village. And people tended to think he meant in sort of a, you know, like a kind of a Walt Disney way. Like, oh, it's a little village and we're all happy and together. No, no, no. That's not what he meant at all. He meant it was going to be a place of where everyone was aware of everybody else's business. There's a lot of backbiting, envy. You know, uh, social tension, <laughs> you know, so it's 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 a mix. It's a deeply mixed bag. And I was able to articulate in a way both the utopian and, if you will, the demonic side of this kind of global technology. But a more I think a, a better figure rather than thinking of the sort of angel demon tension 
is to think about technology in particular. If it has a mythological identity, it's the trickster. And tricksters bring gifts and they bring pranks. They can be devilish. They can be celebratory and erotic. They can open the gates to the other dimensions and they can fool you. So all of those kind of qualities from a mythological level, I think are, are at play inside our technology and that this just, and this hasn't changed since, you know, 25 years ago when I was writing Technosis. It's, it's, it manifests in different ways. There are different balances. You know, conspiracy theory in the 1990s was a, marginal operation for the most part. You know, I was fascinated with it back then because it it showed so much about the mind, about how we use mythological categories to organize political reality, and also how politics themselves have a conspiratorial or even mythological dimension that can take the form of these sort of uh, overwhelming cartoon narratives of evil forces and manipulation. It was really fascinating stuff back then. I find it less fascinating now because it's it's mainstream and a, a politically oppressive in a lot of ways. It's understandable. I get it. I know why it's there. It's not going anywhere, but uh, but the consequences of it are much more sobering these days. Um, so, in a way, I wish that I didn't recognize our contemporary um, technological landscape as as well as I do, uh, because it might mean that it was it turned out a little bit. Uh, Less fractiously and and uh, uh, and dark than than what than indeed what we actually have, but I do think that if you've been paying attention to the question of technology, uh, this kind of uh, almost apocalyptic mixture is sort of in the cards. Well, science is very mainstream in the present era, and, and it has been for a good hundred years or or more. Esoteric culture, though, uh, is fascinating as it is, and, and certainly in California and even where I am in New Mexico, it's a very, very popular. Uh, it's not mainstream. But at uh, one time in history, it was. Yeah, I see what you say. I, I think it depends kind of, on, you know, again, on how you draw draw lines. Like uh, if you look at, you know, contemporary wellness culture uh, and the, the uh, yoga uh, for mm. the last 20 years, um, you'll see something that actually really has entered the mainstream. Does it enter in its full esoteric splendor? No, but there are traces and elements there that are sort of um, significant. I do think that there's a tendency in the enchanted side of the imagination to kind of move to the side, that there's a bit of a, there's an esoteric quality, there's an insider quality, and this lends itself to subcultural groups, hippie dropouts, to raver kids, to conspiracy theorists who are kind of on the edge of things, you know, against the mainstream. It's like conspiracy theory doesn't exist without the idea that there is a mainstream that is lying to us against which you you are you you put your case. Of course, the reverse is true as well. The very idea of conspiracy theory is an invention of the mainstream. You know, the New York Times and the uh, media, and to some degree, the CIA. 
in the 1960s as a way to castigate the people who believed that Oswald didn't act alone when he killed JFK or when JFK was, was assassinated. So they had to deal with all of these different stories. So they invented the category, which didn't exist before, of conspiracy theory as a way to make sure we can put all those characters over there. So it's always a double game. The mainstream is marginalizing and the margins are, you know, trying to empower their marginalization and take pokes back at the mainstream. And they even have to act like sometimes they're in the margins when they're not. I mean, we see this with the Republican Party all the time. They act like they're victims and they have a lot of control. They might, they might say the same thing about, um, you know, multicultural uh, global elites that they act like they're victims, but they're actually in control. So this game of like being the outsider and the insider is, uh, is, it is a game that we've been playing for, for a very long time. But science just doesn't, ah, yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, there are many people who, who live, you know, within what they conceive as a scientific world where they, they follow reason. They don't believe in supernatural ideas. They trust studies more or less. They trust doctor, mainstream doctors more or less. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in the, in the, uh, in the modern world. But the more you look at people's actual practices, I believe, there's, there's almost always some trace of the unconscious or the weirdness or magical thinking or, uh, uh religious patterns. Um, and I mean, this is probably the way I see the world, but I think it's also really true. And, and you can see that even inside the history of, the history of science or uh, uh, the history of technology, where you find these individuals and practices over and over again, again, not in the mainstream, but they're always there where they're, they're trafficking in multiple, uh, in multiple worlds. Well, I know you've written about Gurdjieff and I, I may, I'm sure you're quite familiar with Colin Wilson. Uh, also, they both seem to be suggesting that mainstream culture turns people into robots, that we have to somehow overcome that if we're ever going to uh, develop inner freedom. Yeah, those, that's a really powerful idea. I think one of my I think my favorite chapter in, in technosis, the one that I still am learning from, uh, is one called the spiritual cyborg. And what I talk about in there is how the idea that human beings are, can, are machines or can be machines or are often machines, programmable machines, robots, can actually, even though it sounds very kind of like dark science fiction or, again, almost conspiratorial, that that idea and even that way of seeing yourself can be part of a a self-realization process or a coming to terms or a, a expansion of awareness or a, an ability to, to heal and, and a step outside of your, of the trap of the self. And Gurdjieff is of course, you know, number one spot there because uh, to, as far as I understand it, he was really the first modern spiritual thinker to really radically embrace that model that most of the time, and I would say not just because of modern society, but just the nature of the cosmic situation we're in, is that unless we do serious spiritual work, which for him was very much work with a capital W, uh, that we're, it's just too easy to stay asleep because all of these things in our, in our lives are, and, and in the world are kind of encouraging us to stay asleep, to just 
have the ideas we've had, to accept the programming we've, we've received, to work within the dominant cultural narrative, and that unless we start seeing our own mechanicalness, which is an unpleasant thing to do, to see the way that you do act often as a reactive robot, uh, following programmed scripts that you don't really know the origins of or the value of ultimately, then until you can really start seeing that, it's actually hard to make room for other narratives, other possibilities, other modes of consciousness. Um, so it becomes actually a really interesting kind of feature of, of some uh, thinkers and spiritual practitioners who really worked on this edge of, of a scientific way of thinking about things and a more cosmic way of thinking about things. Another great example here, uh, close to my own heart, is the gr greatly loved and, and greatly uh, 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 sort of loathed Timothy Leary. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of things we could say about Timothy Leary, but one thing that's totally true is that Timothy Leary was the first person to really start using, like, brain talk in a popular context. That we're just brains that are, pro our brains are programmed. We can, uh, uh, you know, release these programs. In the 1960s, he would even refer to human beings as DNA robots. And, you know, nowadays, the idea that we're DNA robots is kind of like mainstream almost. Like we sort of, a lot of scientific reality sort of accepts this model that we're, we're kind of programmed by our genes and our drives and we don't maybe have very much agency at all. So, even within scientific ways of thinking, a lot of people come to this almost nihilistic conclusion that human beings are actually just sort of DNA robots. And so it's, it's strange how these sort of spiritual fringe ideas and mainstream concepts kind of begin to sort of resemble each other uh, now and again. And I think, I think the, to, to talk a little bit more about Leary is that I think one of the interesting features about psych psychedelics today and the sort of explosion uh, uh, and of interest in psychedelics is because in some ways they work within a quasi-scientific materialist framework. You're taking a drug, the drug does something to the brain and the way that the mind is modeling reality and it models it according to habits that are sort of programmed and scripted and oh suddenly this drug enters in and shifts things and we maybe have the possibility to heal to change our patterns to actually take advantage of the plastic quality of mind to come up with new ways of being in the world and so i i feel like there's a connection there to this sort of waking up to being a dna robot and then actually following protocols to transform which from the Gurdjieff school to some psychedelic work today involve uh, ex accepting that dimension of the self and dimension of reality, but not being completely imprisoned by it. You highlight what, what I think is a very important paradox, and I discovered it in your chapter on Gurdjieff, when some of his students reported back to him that their friends are complaining that even though they're engaged in this intense spiritual practice, they seem to be behaving more and more like robots, echoing Gurdjieff. And Absolutely. his response uh, was very interesting. He Something to the effect of, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's actually a very funny thing about some kinds of spiritual practice. And, I, you know, the way that I think about it, I tend to think about it as a little bit of a, of a mistake. 
if you're getting that kind of feedback from your pals and your family, you might be doing something wrong or maybe you want to like get through the phase you're in, you know, quicker rather than, than, uh, than linger, overly lingering there. But it is the case that when you start to step out of the mainstream narrative, it, uh, although I must say here that at this point in history, it's not really clear to me that there is a mainstream narrative anymore. It looks like there's multiple narratives. And so in some ways, these, these dynamics have gotten much squirrelier. But let's just stay with the mainstream. You're waking up to your own robotic nature and the possibilities of not responding completely reactively and that there's some degree of freedom that often at this stage people over identify with the sort of observer because one of the things that wakes up in you as you as you see the way that you're a robot sometimes often most of the time according to Gurdjieff almost all the time maybe that you when you see that what's seeing that well it's something that can be that in a way can be reified into this observer. And, you know, Colin Wilson talked about this. Charles Tart talked about it. It's one way of describing what happens with spiritual awakening is that you suddenly start identifying with the observer who's kind of like checking out reality, including your personality, including the way your personality is responding to other people. And over time, this kind of internal distance can sort of take away the flavor and the juice of your personal engagement in the world because you're sort of not identifying with it anymore. And again, there are certain spiritual p paths where this is sort of a, the main way you go for a while. There are others that kind of pass through it. And there's others that say, no, 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 that's kind of a trap. There's other ways of doing this that you don't, you don't lose the juice. And I, I'm a kind of a juice guy. So, you know, I'm also a little distrustful of that. Um, but it does point to the way in which, you know, once you're really on this kind of course, there, you're, you're sort of setting yourself up for an event in the future when the rug is sort of pulled out from under your whole self-concept. And that can be very uh, challenging. It can be <clears throat> uh, seriously discombobulating. Some people get really stuck there or even lose, lose the plot for a while. And some people react by becoming very uh, kind of cold and distant. You have this sort of ascetic remove and a kind of, you know, like as if that's an escape. And I don't think it's much of an escape. You look at somebody like Rajiv, he was drinking whiskey. He was philandering. He was playing his harmonium, beautiful songs on his harmonium, beautiful, sad music on his harmonium. He was a very lively character. So I think that, you know, maybe to a fault. Uh, so I think that, that it's always sort of good to balance in a way that kind of internal detachment and withdrawal with more uh, more engagement. So if you're if you're on a path where you're uh, you're finding yourself kind of removed from your personality or more detached, please go to a dance concert, go to a, a, a electronic dance music festival and dive into the crowd, or immerse yourself in you know jumping into cold water with surrounded by birds and fishes i mean get in get into it too because otherwise you know you can you can uh get a little too robotic in a, in a weird way and we all know that from from so-called cults you know what a cult is is again an, another one of these problems like magic and religion where you can argue all day about what a cult actually is uh but you know to take the generic idea there's this kind of glassy-eyed 
sort of responsiveness that emerges because the old programming gets broken down, but then instead of liberation, you get a bunch of new programming, which makes you even more robotic, even though you think you've woken up from the consensus trance. Mm -hmm. We've seen the same logic at a much greater degree uh, with, with QAnon, where, you know, I, I have no doubt that you, like me, were shocked at some of our friends and compatriots or people we knew on the scene who suddenly started to get more and more far out and then actually ended up kind of just saying the same lines that we were getting from everywhere else. And one of the peculiarities of the whole of the rhetoric was like, everyone, they're all sheeple. You're all sheeple. We're waking up. We're finally seeing the truth. We're the, the, the Jedis who are fighting against the, the empire of lies, et cetera, et cetera. And they had a, a language of themselves being free or being liberated, being, being um, open-minded, doing their own research. But if you listen to most, I'm not going to say all because there are some interesting forces and factors. I don't want to just say QAnon is this completely hogwash. There's some, you know, we're in a, we live in a weird time. But when you listen to most people who were, who were touting the party line, they just sounded like QAnon robots. Like, oh yeah, no, I, oh you're going to get to the part with the the pedophilia now, and that oh wait no the adrenochrome. Oh yeah yeah here you go. Oh yeah yeah I know how this this triangle goes together. Those of us who followed it knew the moves, so we were rarely rarely surprised. So actually, it kind of looked like you just shifted robot teams. You didn't really wake up. It just looked like a waking up. And, and indeed, I think a lot of the, the the trickiness of our era right now is that. People are presenting things that look like a waking up when they're actually like, hey, come over onto this team of ro of, of robots <laughs> and, and fight for us, you know, or the meme is doing that or the whatever it is doing that. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a very interesting uh, process. But I think we all have or even sh more than have should develop this kind of intuitive sense of like this person is not acting like a robot right now. This person is like in the thing, in the moment, whatever. And, and to kind of encourage that. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a pipe dream, but I certainly still try to live that way. In the moment. I like that. Of course, uh, in a way it comes from Ramdas, be here now. Uh, one of the developments I think that really got off the ground in, in the 1970s was video gaming and Video gaming culture is just full of esoteric and, and magical uh, possibilities that, that people uh, live. It's, it becomes part of their life that they, they have magical implements and, and, and so on. And yet, at the same time, when you get deeply involved in video gaming culture, it also seems quite robotic. Hmm. I think that's a that's a very very interesting point. Uh, I really love it. it it's uh, it's worth thinking about. You know, one that was another story that I traced in, in technosis and another uh, example of how magic just doesn't go away is that even you have these advanced technologies and you have a culture of people using them who are trained in coding and mathematics and rationality and systems thinking and electronics, electronical engineering, et cetera, et cetera, that in their free time, uh, they, they enjoyed playing these games, some of which ended up ha really exploiting these magical metaphors. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that we just have part of 
the way that the human psyche is organized, it's attracted to magic. It fears it, but it's also attracted to it. And it, it doesn't take that much for many of us to be knocked into t uh, magical thinking, at least temporarily. So that's part of the attraction. But there's another reason, which there is some interesting connections between the way computers work and ideas about how language works inside of magic. Because inside a magical world, language is power. Language makes things happen. You say a spell, you draw a sigil, and the thing happens because your words can sh directly shape reality. In a way, that is the magical gambit, and that's the one that the, the typical scientist rejects. Words do not directly control reality. They can influence people to make things happen, or et cetera, et cetera. But the magician's like, no, I can change reality with a word, and that's kind of what computers do. So it's almost inevitable that the space of play within the computer, video games and then computer games, and massive multiplayer online, et cetera, et cetera, that magic is going to become a dominant metaphor. And at the same time, you're totally right that it's not, it's a different kind of magic because it comes with a cost, which is that in addition to the actual cost of the product, is that a lot of your behavior becomes really routine. And, and I've, I've had friends who were deep, deep players. I've never, I've never been that deep, but people who were like, like they went all the way to the end of World of Warcraft and they talked about how initially it was an enchanted other world. And they were meeting new people in their avatar guises and there was playfulness and exploration and magical objects and they kept going well, but they had to make money and so they had to do these things, these laborious things over and over again and da da da. And then at the end, they're participating in these, you know, uh, uh, organized campaigns that are super bureaucratic in order to be effective. So there's this weird uh, dance within games between like the mechanics which always can be efficiently, most efficiently deployed and therefore has a kind of ultimately disenchanted bureaucratic logic and the magic of the world, of the identity of the character, of what the narrative, what's happening. And these two things are like <laughs> constantly like, you know, out, outpacing each other. Uh, it's, it's totally fascinating. It's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. In my, in my parallel life, I'm a total, uh, hardcore gamer it just i just didn't have time in this one <laughs> well i know a number of theorists who look at the paranormal as i'm a parapsychologist so i have good data empirical data regarding the paranormal and many people have access to this data and some of them are, are puzzling over it because it does seem inconsistent with materialist reductionist science. So they suggest we're living in a simulation, that we're part of somebody else's computer game, so to speak. Yeah, the idea that we're inside of an, of an artifact uh, is, a, is a very potent one. Um, one of the, uh, again, you know, not to keep going back to this, you know, now ancient text, but one of the things that I trace in, in technosis is, is, uh, how from a certain perspective we can we can look far back and see the same kind of impulse i mean it's always a little dubious to compare our our mind frame with people 2000 years ago but there is something to be said for the for the you know the gnostic idea that the world that we're in is an imperfect simulacrum 
that was created by a lower being who thinks that he's God but isn't, uh, and that our goal is to get out of this false material reality. Uh, now, there are some major differences, the, the Gnostics, so to speak. I mean, there were a lot of different groups that went under that name, and some scholars don't even like to use the term, but let's just say it, use it. The Gnostics associated the fallen world with matter, Whereas our contemporary model, the one that you're talking about, the simulation hypothesis, is almost the opposite. It's like, no, there isn't matter. It's code. And we just perceive it as matter because that's how we've uh, been organized. But I, I do feel like there there's a sort of shared sentiment there that you can see in popular culture. You can you can see in, in these ideas. Um, and again, it's another example of how peculiar our, our moment is right now where those ideas, you can... You can trace back sort of informational forms of this simulation hypothesis, meaning that, you know, they had to do with a kind of computer scenario. You can go back to the 70s and you find a few characters who were saying them here or there, but it was super marginal. Nobody was going to think about it. And now it's like, you know, there are like reasonable mathematical statistical arguments that's proponents will will give you not that they're hey man it could be like we could be inside of a giant computer it's not like that it's like <laughs> well if you actually imagine the extrapolation of simulating power and the, the likelihood that we're done you know it's like it's a whole elaborate uh, uh, argument based on statistics and certain presumptions that lead to this almost overwhelming conclusion that we are you know inside this game which you know, in a way, well, then just keep playing the game. I mean, it's like, what are you going to do? Get out? I mean, you're going to get out when you die anyway. So it's like it's coming up, you know, to me, it never really bothered me that much because I'm still going to like seek fun, uh, be compassionate, try to wake up. Maybe when you wake up, you do see something about reality that that m makes it look more this way. But uh, sometimes I find it a, a little, um, I don't know, uh, a little, a little juvenile. Uh, but uh, but on the other hand, it's a great example because a lot of the people who might take the simulation hypothesis example um, wouldn't otherwise dally with uh, cosmic or metaphysical or transcendental ideas about what's actually going on in the world. Whereas in spirituality or religious traditions, people have been arguing and exploring and mo modeling the way in which the world is an illusion but it's or an appearance that's sort of like an illusion, but it shows up and we have to deal with it, but it's still an illusion. And all these paradoxes and complexities, which are so deep in, uh, in some spiritual cultures, some metaphysical traditions, you know, we're kind of naive materialists or not really materialists, but, uh, naturalists, I guess is probably the best word in the modern world. And so when we hit this idea, we do it in our own way. Uh, but it all points, I think, to the same issue that when we, step out of being a programmed DNA robot in whatever direction we do, there's this phase or sense with uh, that we have that the world is a construct or an artifact or an illusion or a program or uh, a prison even. Um, and the trick is to navigate that without getting too paranoid. <laughs> I know you did your work in religious studies with Jeffrey Kripal who's um, a friend of mine, a brilliant uh, professor. And 
I, I remember at one time he, he said that if he could start all over again, he'd go into parapsychology, which, which is my field. And it's very interesting because it, in spite of 140 years of data, it's still, I would say, marginalized within science. Uh, you, if you go to Wikipedia, for example, the parapsychology is described still as a pseudoscience. And, and I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I, um, well, first, just on Wikipedia. You know, I was, I was always a, a loyal Wikipedia fan. I gave them money. Um, I still see it's one of the few things from the sort of first wave OG internet that, that is, is, you know, readily, this still has power and, um, and I love aspects of it. But as a historian of alternative religion, I, I can only say that it has been taken over by a sort of skeptical atheist cabal that actively distort historical reality in order to put forward their agenda of how we should think about the paranormal or even just alternative spirituality, alternative medicine, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning that without entering into, and this is just a little rant because it's pissed me off so often as somebody who's look, using Wikipedia as a loyal Wikipedia user, not loyal, but like, you know, a researcher, that uh, it's not about whether or not this particular argument is true in some way that we're going to, you know, establish scientifically. It's just that even the, his, the historical account of these movements, of these researchers, of these events, of what people were saying about it, what people were thinking about it, even historical accounts get mangled by these ideologues in a way that but really distorts the story. And it's quite quite enervating to me and so i don't give them money anymore because i'm like i can't you guys you got hacked by these atheists in a way that distorts reality and 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 a funny thing about those atheists is they'll complain about religion a lot but they're the ones who are acting religious they're the ones who are acting like militant protestants who know the truth and will damn the pagan liars and wizards you know, they're the ones who have to hold on so tightly to their imperious view of what reality is that they have to actively distort in order to justify their continued existence. Okay, rant over. More interesting, <laughs> more interesting big, big uh, question about, about the paranormal. You're totally right that uh, it remains marginalized, not just from science, but from, you know, the mainstream, you know, New York Times kind of mainstream reality, uh, you know, and even in, 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 in conservative, the conservative mainstream, like nobody really takes it seriously. And I always, uh, I always come back to a line that Dean Radin said, who's a, you know, very, very, uh, high ranking, if you will, uh, uh, accomplished parapsychologist, very thoughtful fellow. And I had him on my podcast years ago, and I and I asked him. So after all your years doing decades doing this, what what have you learned the most about? I thought he was going to say like something about the way mind interacts with matter or something like that. And he said, "The sociology of science." That was his answer, because to understand the place of the paranormal in the larger worldview. It's about the sociology of science. 
of how institutions, social forces, cultural narratives, uh, uh, people with money, da da da, how they all organize what what truth is. And now we're in this sort of, you know, post-truth moment, which I hate to say because it's not quite true, but it is sort of. Uh, and so this whole issue of the paranormal is 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 shifting and changing right now in a really significant way. And I believe, as we've already seen with kind of the UFO discourse, which I put as in a different fundamentally different category in a lot of ways, even though there's some overlap, I think it's important to keep those at least conceptually separate, um, that as we've seen with that narrative, I think that, that, uh, we're going to, we're on a, a, a paranormal wave is coming. Parapsychology wave is coming more science, more attention, more counter hegemonic narratives. Um, and also because of the, the, um, expected explosion of psychedelic experiences that people are having when you have more and more normies who are like wow that sure felt like telepathy to me um you're just going to start seeing more activity in in this uh, in this domain and you know hopefully i mean i'm i'm pretty uh i don't want to say skeptical i'm i'm slow moving i'm not i'm not a get on the on the bus guy but it seems completely apparent to me that there are statistically significant results. That's all, you know, statistically significant results. And even if that's all you get, that's still really, really significant and does point to some like, we don't quite get it. We don't quite know what consciousness is or what it does or what does it mean to be aware of the world and things like that. And so for me, it's, it's less about like, uh, you know, getting on the bus and do the trumpet, the paranormal is real. It's more about the way that parapsychology and these discourses constantly erode and poke and spur everybody else to sort of stay on their toes. And most people don't want to deal with it, so they just ignore it. And that works in a lot of ways. But if you're paying attention, even if you're still somewhat skeptical, it acts as a kind of firm ferment, a place where like questions, fundamental questions are raised, questions about science, what is, uh, you know, uh, what is an observer effect, how do you organize a, a, a truly, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of pure experiment without any, uh, inf- you know, because of course, para- parapsychologists have to go through the most rigorous sort of uh, uh experimental protocols because everybody else, nobody's watching their ass. So it's like, you can just make stuff up if you're like studying at SSRIs and, you know, maybe somewhere along the line, people, someone will go, well, that wasn't a very good experiment. Now was it, but nobody really cares because it's big pharma and know who's arguing against them and et cetera, et cetera. But over here, you know, with parapsychology, everyone's going to be on that. So you have to be really, really clean with your experimental design. So it's, it's a fascinating zone. And I think kind of like everything else in the world right now, it's just about to sort of start to break out in new and and very interesting ways uh, as sort of consensus reality begin continues to unravel or, you know, re reorganize itself into these multiple worldviews. Uh, so yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. I'm curious for what, what do you see? What do you expect to, to happen or maybe already see happening inside parapsychology? 
Oh, I could go on for a long time about <laughs> that, Eric. Uh, but uh, let's talk about, for example, it, just recently, I think it was the Daily Beast published a story. It's been all over the Internet now. Uh, and the headline is something that due to quantum entanglement and the new Nobel laureates that were just given out to John Clauser, who I used to know at Berkeley, and other scientists proving the uh, the quantum entanglement embodied in Bell's theorem, that uh, physicists understand that time and space aren't what we used to think they are. So it, it does seem, as, as you point out, that uh, there's something of a truth to this post-truth idea, that <laughs> a truth to post-truth, that uh, uh, it, it does look like uh, we're entering into an era where our, our very most fundamental definitions of reality are up for grabs. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, you know, if you've been, if one has been paying attention and reading, you know, even popular science accounts, you, you've kind of, we've kind of known this for a while, but there's a sense in which it is now distributed knowledge and that people are kind of acting from that, no, that knowledge or that idea of knowledge of that story about knowledge, you know, my, my ideas about quantum physics are stories. They're not quantum physics because I can't get there. I don't have the math, but, uh, but, but I, you know, my story is pretty good, I think. Um, and, uh, that we're sort of coming from it rather than like, you know, I've been reading weird physics since I was in high school, but a lot of the time it was like, there's me in my life and there's weird physics over there. And you kind of go into that world and like, wow, Bell Serum, it's crazy. Are you kidding? And then you come back and you're like, you know, okay, got to go on, turn on the TV, do, do whatever I'm doing. And now I feel like those worlds are sort of blended and everyone is kind of more like, wow, we really, I really don't know what's going on. I really, the whole nature of physical reality, whoa, you know, it's, it's more sort of in our, in our faces. And I think that the Nobel Prize was a really significant Effect. Now, I don't know enough about the politics of the Nobel Prize inside physics to know, you know, if, if you were really an insider, whether this would have seemed as significant as it does to me. But the fact that a fundamental physics crew weirdo got a Nobel Prize for like the weirdest thing in physics is really, to me, very significant. It's like that, that moment, that kind of, uh, fringe and then not so fringe movement within physics to take Bell's theorem really seriously. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it seems significant to me. I guess from another point of view, you could say, well, that's actually what science does is it takes things that look really magical and bizarre and then it kind of understands them and routinizes them. And so now, you know, even though uh, folks back in the seventies thought, Hey, maybe we can use Bell's theorem to like do faster than light information transfer. Yeah, we can't really, that doesn't seem to really work, at least in the conventional sense of how information works. But we can use it for really, really good encryption. So not quite as enchanting, a little bit more banal, but still pretty cool. So in a way, that's also what kind of science does is it takes little elements of this marvelous chaos of reality and sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, brings it into the normal. Um, uh, uh, and so it's, it's kind of both and in this, in this situation, but it still seems significant to me and it certainly uh, warmed the cockles of my, my heart. Well, I think we're just at the beginning. 
I actually wrote about Bell's theorem and, and its potential application to uh, telepathy and psychic phenomenon in, in my first book back in 1975. So it's interesting to see over half a century how it is becoming uh, more and more acknowledged. And uh, I can imagine another 50 years from now, uh, the world will be so different. It might be hard for us today to recognize it. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I, I often feel that like, uh, you know, I'm just almost everything I do is just for the archive because this is going to change so much that so little of it will be of interest to people unless they're interested in history or it may, it might even be wrote. Like sometimes I'm writing my book and I'm like, Oh God, I got to finish this book. Why am I doing this? And I, I go, Oh, I guess I've just, I've just, you know, I'm giving it to the, to the robot historian, you know, the AI historians of the future, you know, who want to understand how this whole thing happened. <laughs> Cause it's like, what, who, who's going to, you know, be reading in 50 years, 75 years, 100 years. I mean, it's really, uh, it's really hard to, hard to say, but you know, still, uh, still a really fascinating, uh, really fascinating time. And the whole question of consciousness doesn't go away. Um, I think another interesting, significant shift is the way that once again, uh, 20, definitely 30 years ago, if you were a panpsychist, and, and I mean, if you're like a scientist, a physicist, whatever, and you said, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a panpsychist, actually, people would think you were, were goofy, you know, that, that was not cool. And now it's still a minority position in those worlds, but it's a completely acceptable one because of yeah. the consciousness discourse, because of particularly the way that consciousness, even in its sort of scientific discussion, it's kind of skeptical discussion, Daniel Dennett and all that, that even in that world, in a way, once you see the panpsychist argument, it kind of makes sense as an argument. And so now it's just like an acceptable position. And what that means and how that plays out uh, is very interesting to see, you know, these different modes of panpsychism. There's some that are more kind of spiritual sounding and almost like Vedanta, I very idealistic in the philosophical sense. And, but there are others that are very naturalist, uh, which is kind of the mode that I'm sort of most attracted to, which is like, no, 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 you just boil it all down. You got matter, you got energy, and you got something like consciousness, something like thinking, something like responsiveness. And it's just in the picture. And in that sense, it's not even that special. But we have to deal with it. And it probably has all sorts of consequences that we're not recognizing because it's, that's not the model that we're, we're coming from. But, uh, but anyway, I think that's another whole, you know, whole zone that's going to continue to be uh, very pertinent and, and very interesting as we go forward. Well, let me ask you one final question. Since you're a scholar of religions, I wonder about the future of religion itself. I know that church attendance has been declining in the United States, and at the same time, uh, belief in such things, uh, which is a big interest of mine, survival of consciousness after death, that's not declining. That seems to be, uh, if anything, going up a little bit. And uh, it suggests to me that we, in the mainstream religions, we're going to be seeing some changes. It's, that raises, again, this question of what is religion? Is religion a formal, you know, organization like a church that has members and you go to and there's a dogma and a book and da, da, da. And that's sort of a traditional, very Christian-influenced idea of what religion is. 
Um, and I think it's important to recognize that while mainline Christianity is continues to decline significantly, and, and um, that other aspects of Christianity in the United States are doing a-okay and in fact are kind of increasing not their institutional strength, but their symbolic power. So, you know, uh, over the last couple decades, Christianity and the, you know, uh, more right-wing uh, Republican zone have become more and more strictly identified. Again, not in the sense that you know, MAGA fanatics are all going to church. In fact, it's actually not that. That's what's kind of weird is that you have more and more people who are declaiming the return of Jesus Christ and the name of, of Christianity, but they actually don't go to church. It's become part of the sort of ideological polarization in the United States. So it's just important to, to acknowledge that some forms of traditional religion, um, though one could argue about how traditional that is, are, 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 responding to our moment, albeit often in a reactionary way. Um, on the other side, you'd say that whatever religion is, is kind of dissolving or it's melting and spreading, you know, so it's less clearly defined, but it's kind of also everywhere, which is sort of how I, I tend to see, see the situation. Again, wellness uh, is, a, is a great way to see this happens if you're going to track Buddhism and how Buddhism, once it hits the West, you know, it allows certain very obvious religious forms to continue, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, aspects of Zen, where there's like a formal thing and costumes and books and a certain kind of traditional pedagogy. But at the same time, Buddhism also melts into, you know, mindfulness practices and self-help and uh, you know, ambient feelings of uh, oneness with nature or whatever. There's all these different ways that religion kind of disappears, uh, even as elements of it uh, continue. And again, be if you're like me and you think that human beings have a fundamentally, in the most broad sense, religious dimension or a dimension that's interested in ultimate values or uh, the, the, the suspicion that there's more than just this world, uh, there might be something more than life. There's something in spirits. There's something in ghosts. You know, whatever. Even if you don't actually believe it in your in your waking mind, it's kind of there somewhere in the system. That as religion breaks down, you're actually just going to see more and more of these strange uh, hybrids where you're you know you're you're interested in science and cryogenics, but you actually really believe in in some kind of survival after death. Because you look at the evidence, or you look at other parapsychology experiments, and you read them a certain way. So you're not really acting like a religious person anymore. And yet there is that same call towards what is beyond what we know, what is beyond what we can see, what is beyond the world as it just sort of appears to us uh, now. And that's very much true in science fiction, for example. I mean, that's a lot of what, even though science fiction, the nuts and bolts of it, are often based on science and are often quite atheist in motivation. A lot of the you know, great science fiction authors were atheists. Nonetheless, we're attracted to it, and, and it ends up having an influence on, certainly on popular culture through more popular forms of science fiction that, that end up replaying a lot of mythological and religious kinds of narratives 
and 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 you know satisfying those kinds of desires in, in in different ways. So again, I just don't think we're ever we ever get out of the soup, and it's important to sort of be self conscious and self aware of the ways in which your own thinking is magical in ways or is religious in ways, and also how you balance that with uh, uh, ideas of science, of evidence, of skepticism, which I think sh- should be. Uh, you know, equally, if not more, uh, emphasized in the, in, in the kind of constellation that we are. Well, Eric Davis, this has been a fascinating conversation, a delightful conversation. Uh, we've touched base on many, many of my favorite topics. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, Jeffrey, this is great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for, for keeping on. Well, thank you for being with me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. 